Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. I'm Karen Jakonski. Whether you're a parent or not, you may remember Jennifer Sr.'s 2010 New York Magazine article, All Joy and No Fun, Why Parents Hate Parenting. And you may remember the discussion and debate that followed. Her report of recent findings in the social sciences, that in certain cases parents might be less happy than non-parents, touched a few nerves. I read the article before I had my daughter, when I was merely a spectator in the parenting game, and I read Senior's upcoming book, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting, when my daughter was almost two. In it, Senior expands on the article and thoroughly explores the ways in which children affect their parents. I'll just say things sure are different now, for me and for parenthood in general, it seems, which has undergone a major transformation in the last 50 years. Who knew? Jennifer Sr. has written about politics. Check out her 2006 profile of Barack Obama and more recent profile of Justice Scalia for New York Magazine. All Joy and No Fun is a move towards social science, but as you'll hear from someone who's covered the U.S. Senate for years, politics and the family unit have a lot in common. I was going to ask you about your access to everyone, you know, you spend as much time with them as you'd think. You know, if you spend a full day and a half at someone's house, it's a lot of time. They're like ready to see you go. Whenever I approach civilians, I'm always so curious, like, do they know what they are in for? Do they have any idea? Especially these guys, because they were just people sitting in a parenting class. Um, they were not like people who volunteered to be on a reality TV show, you know, where they were like, sure, I want you to write all about me. I mean, they literally just showed up at class one day and this lady with a tape recorder was like sitting there. So I had no idea how any of these people were gonna take to having some girl shadowing them and asking them deeply personal questions. I don't know, I think some people would be, or re- most people are really open about their lives. Well, and, and as, they as want we see to. in the book, yeah. And also there's like, oh my God, somebody's asking me about this. I get to talk about it, it's true. There's this, like, pent-up need. Especially the dads, too. I'm so glad you noticed that. They really wanted to talk. And some of their perspectives and the things that they said about the choices they make with parenting, I really admired. And you're so reluctant to stereotype about things like this. Because, of course, there are men who overthink things and women who have a completely like Cartesian approach to things, you know, this is the logical and appropriate way to do it. And also, you know, all the data supporting that, that like when men are home, they're less likely to be multitasking, whereas women are more likely to be multitasking, that they save all their multitasking for work. And that at home, they seem to feel like so in control. I really admired, yeah, how kind of uncomplicated they decided it was gonna be. Although I was also really touched by all the stay-at-home dads who said that they were like kind of at sixes and sevens, um, that they couldn't figure out how to build communities. Because you can't go up to another mother in the park and be like, hey, I'm a stay-at-home dad when I have coffee, because it just felt slightly... No, it's true. I, I, I felt bad for that. I know, I felt really bad. Because <laughs> what a bold choice to have to do for so many reasons. I know. And they, I know, and you know, I didn't include this, but a, a number of them in the stay-at-home dad classes also talked about having to get over that kind of traditional like shame associated with like, what do you do? Well, I'm home with my kid. I laughed when one guy said something about, you know, getting a gun and just 
Oh, that was Dan Gilbert talking about how bored he got playing with his kid. Mm -hmm. In 2010, when your article came out, yeah. or when you were writing it, did you know that you would be writing a book? Or no. did the conversation that the article generated make you think, oh, God, I have a book here? Yeah, I knew there was more there. There was just a ton of material I'd never swept into the article. I, I didn't think that the question could be explored much further than I did. I mean, like, interrogating this one finding in social science, you know, do kids compromise your happiness, don't they? Like, you, there's only so far you could go. But I, I intuited pretty early on that, like, if instead you ask the question, how do children affect their parents rather than how do parents affect their kids, you could run, like, a marathon on it. You could go the whole distance. Um, I did not expect to write a book about it. In fact, social science reporting was still a little bit new to me, and most of what I was doing at New York Magazine was still basically politics. I had written, like, five covers on, like, the Clintons and two on the Obamas, and um, I just... I thought of myself mainly as a politics writer, and I started segueing into social science reporting and totally enjoyed it, um, but did not envision. And I still, I have to say, I still slightly dread how this is going to play out, because when I tell people about my book, their first instinct is to ask me questions about how to raise their kid, and I, number one, have to explain that I know nothing about raising kids, that it's not a child-rearing book and that it's a social science book. And I'm still new even to social science. Like, I really, it's still not even my comfort zone. If you look at, like, what my bio was when, like, we were submitting my book proposals to, like, all the different agents, it was like, Jen has, you know, been on Charlie Rose and C-SPAN and Chris Matthews. You know, I, like, it's all, like, a political CV. It was like... So no. why, why the segue, then? I don't know. I think the way that I always approached politics was slightly ethnographic. I always looked at the Senate as like this weird system, this universe of like relationships. The adage was that the personal is political, but I always considered politics very personal, that it was all built on, on relationships and extremely complex pathways and rites and rituals. And like, I really loved covering the Senate. It's kind of a tribal place and people make all sorts of strange alliances. And I was an anthro major. I'm like kind of an ethnographer by training. So um, reading social science seemed sort of natural anyways. Mm -hmm. Oh, and when I wrote about, one of the kind of insights I had early on in politics about sort of this obsession that we have with authenticity was um, like who the authentic personalities were who succeeded and who they were that failed. Mm -hmm. And the authentic personalities who succeeded were people like Bill Clinton who had this kind of front stage personality going all the time. They were the same at 4 o'clock in the morning and 4 in the afternoon if they had an audience of 1,000 or an audience of 10. Whereas all the authentic personalities who failed were the angry people. They had backstage personalities. Um, they were the people who always showed their kind of angry, sarcastic side. Um, like who? McCain. Yeah. Um, huh. Is it? Like, yeah, but, but there were definitely others. Why am I, um, Perot. And they were always kind of cold fishes. What gave me that insight was uh, a sociology book. It was Irving Goffman's book on um, the um, self in, uh, in everyday life. And it was all about how we present ourselves. It was like a 1963 sociology textbook. So like, I, I think my mind had always kind of toggled back between the two. And, and so it didn't seem like that big a switch. And also, you know, it, David Brooks really is into social science and he was into politics. 
And John Tierney was really into politics and then turned to social science. There does seem to be some kind of weird nexus where people think about the two a lot. The way you describe the Senate, it's definite similarities to the family structure. Totally. Oh, oh my God, absolutely. I mean, there are the bosses, there are the new kids mm -hmm. who are like the equivalent of the younger siblings. There's like, you know, if you consider it a family of large siblings, there are alliances that you make in order to, you know, kind of work around your mother's will if your mother is the Senate majority leader. Right. You know, I mean, there, there, there are things you do, you know. Um, yeah. Were you really surprised by anything that you learned about people or parenting or modern parenting? Did anything make you, like, sit and say, oh my, oh my God. When I read the history, I was totally surprised. I did not realize until reading A History of Modern Childhood that, oh my God, the reason that we are all at sixes and sevens is because this is all brand new. I didn't understand any of, any of that. That, like, the modern, sheltered, protected childhood where the sole job of the child is to go to school mm -hmm. and excel at certain stuff and the sole job of the parent is to make sure that they do that and that parents go broke on their behalf, but that is a brand new arrangement mm -hmm. for which there is no script, that was a total yeah. stunner. That stunned me too. Totally stunned me. When I thought about kids even pre-World War II and how they were, they had an economic purpose. Total, and, and the history of childhood. Kids were going to high school. You know, 50% of Americans did not graduate mm -hmm. from high school until 1940. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an amazing thing to think about. Kids in their teens were working. And in 1910, those numbers were like minuscule. It was like 10%. I mean, it was a really rare thing to complete high school. I'm pretty sure one of my grandparents did not complete high school. The other one did. But um, I'll tell you, the big revelation was like, oh, this is why people are fighting about how to do it. It's because we've never had to make choices about how to do it. Parenting has never been its own independent endeavor like this standalone activity. And I pointed this out, that like parenting as a verb became a common verb mm -hmm. only in like the 1970s. Like kids were just swept into the family structure. They were part of this larger economic purpose where they were kicking in money into the family till. But like, oh, so that's why people argue whether you're supposed to be fanatically attached to your kid or let them run off and do their own thing. That's why people don't know whether you're supposed to like aggressively cultivate the heck out of them or let them find their calling or let them excel in a vocation or like just shore up their self-esteem or, or tough it out with them or you know um all these debates that we have they are like 10 minutes old in the cosmic scheme of things that was a complete surprise i had no idea sometimes you just want to go with your intuition and this is what i'm going to do and i'm not going to do this but then you think what if I make a mistake? What if I sh what if we should be crazy with our kids and overschedule them but at let me, the wazoo? Okay, so let me just point something out though. But intuition, see, even that concept, like we act like intuition, it's our instincts. It should be native. It should be born of like millions of years of evolution. And we don't consider that some of our instincts are not instincts but habits, and that they are culturally and historically mediated, and that some of the things that we do as parents are not, in fact, instinctual but habitual. And if we had folkways, as Margaret Mead would have said, sitting behind us, we'd know what to do. There would be many, many hundreds, if not thousands of years of folk wisdom telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you, you know, I mean, Dr. Spock said to trust our instincts, but it's not clear to me that we have a totally defined set of instincts when it comes to modern child rearing, other than like, oh, the kid's hungry, feed it. Oh, the kid's tired, put it down. What I think is so interesting is like kind of the conflicting signals. You know, I came back with my kid and they drilled me in the hospital. If your kid sleeps more than X number of hours, wake it to feed mm -hmm. it. You don't want it going into shock. Whereas my mother is like staring at me going, you're going to wake yeah. a sleeping baby? Never you... wake a sleeping baby. Right. That's I mean, this I was axiomatic in her generation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they're just directly contradictory. And you'd think your instinct mm -hmm. would go one way or the other. You know, but, I mean, in the hospital they're telling us one thing. So, it's like... It's a miracle any of us grow up and... <laughs> Except for that we've been doing it for a bazillion sure. years. Everybody seems fine, you know. I think, you know, the point might just be that there's more than one way to skin a cat. I'd like to end with a clip from the audiobook version of All Joy and No Fun, narrated by the author, who did a great job, by the way. Senior interviewed a ton of parents all over the country, all of whom were open and honest about parenting and the joyful and, well, not-so-joyful parts of it. One woman who has stayed with me is Sharon, who was raising her grandson, Cameron. All that morning, I fret for Sharon. The task of raising a toddler requires so much energy, even for the young and able-bodied. But for someone who's 67, who's already raised three children, who's living on a fixed income all by herself, these are hardly ideal circumstances for a parent. Most social science studies would predict that a person in Sharon's situation would be far happier without a child. But there are things social science captures well, and there are things it does not. And one of the things it would have a hard time fully capturing on this particular day is what happens when we go to the splash pad. The Manor Park splash pad is just a dinky patch of concrete painted in primary colors and studded with a modest sprinkler system and some swirling gizmos. But it is heaven for a child, and on this 100-degree day, it's heaven for an adult, too. The moment we arrive, Camp starts bobbing and weaving between the water jets, and Sharon, to my amazement, follows right behind him. There's a huge smile on her face, one that doesn't disappear the entire time she's there. In spite of her fatigue, her bad knees, her 67 years, I think unbidden of the opening scene in the book Immortality, in which the narrator watches an older woman wave gaily to a lifeguard, managing for one heartbreaking instant to completely transcend her age. As Sharon stands beneath a nest of buckets, giggling while a stream of water rains down on her head, the same could be said of her. She is as unencumbered as a 20-year-old, a picture of girlish bliss. There is a certain part of all of us, Malan Kundera writes, that lives outside of time. All Joy and No Fun by Jennifer Senior is available in hardcover and as an ebook and digital audio on January 28th. Many thanks to our friend Willie Volouten for providing the music for this podcast. This has been Harper Audio Presents. Thank you for listening.